But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. I want to remind you of something that we pointed out when we began this series. There are two great mountain-top experiences, we could call them, that are found in the scripture. The first of the great mountaintop experiences was that experienced by Moses. You read the narrative in the Hebrew scriptures. You've got two and a half to four million Jewish people, Israelis, at the base of Mount Sinai. And God comes down in fire. There is a display of angelic glory. There is lightning flashing. There is thundering. And Moses went up the mountain. Moses alone went up the mountain. In fact, the people were told, here is the boundary line. And some, some Jewish fellows were appointed. Anybody steps across that boundary line, you shoot them through with an arrow. You get them with a spear. This was set up, and the picture on the sounds and everything about it that assailed their five senses was designed to frighten them. This is a fierce God. And Moses, I would dare say trembling, hiked up that mountain. And he didn't come down for 40 days. And when he came down, it was with those Ten Commandments. And when he got down, the people were already in gross rebellion. And Moses took those Ten Commandments and smashed them. He was so angry at what the people had done. And then they killed the men who were at the core of that rebellion. And then the people repented. And Moses went back up that frightening mountain and got another set of commandments and came down. And then the people said, Moses, 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 make sure uh, we don't really want to talk to this God. By the way, that God wanted them to understand. You need to be careful. Holy, not holy. I am holy. You're not. You need to be careful. And they said, Moses, we don't really want to talk to this God. And God said, that's fine. I'm setting up a priesthood. They will be your intermediaries. And then Moses had a basin of bull's blood 
They have sacrificed a bull. There's a basin of bull's blood, and he's got a hyssop sprig. And the people enter into covenant with God, and they are reciting over and over and over again, all that the Lord has said we will do, all that the Lord has said we will do, all that the Lord has said we will do, and Moses is sprinkling bull's blood on them. And then they promptly didn't do everything the Lord said. <laughs> Just as we would have failed, they failed. It failed. And failed. And failed. And, but the other mountaintop experience is the one we find here in Matthew chapter 5. Where Jesus went up on the mountain seated himself and then the very thing that was forbidden to the ancient Israelis the people just naturally did they all just walked up that mountain to hear from not a Moses like figure no they're they're filling the Moses role Jesus is doing the God role why because that's who he is who do you think Moses was speaking to up on that mountain did you know that Jesus actually says it was him? When they brought that woman into the temple that had committed adultery, and they said, the law says, what do you say? And he goes, you come to the right man, because I'm the one that with my finger, and that's what it says in the Hebrew Scriptures, that the law was inscribed in those stones by the finger of God. And Jesus, he, with that little gesture, he's saying, you've come to the right man. What does the law say? Well, they, the crowd, have come up the mountain. They are the Moses imitators. Jesus is being who he was in the first instance, too. He is the God on the mountain. Except what is so wonderful about the Sermon on the Mount is we hear words that, yes, there is responsibility here. Res responsibility is placed on us as we walk up that mountain. And we should say with the ancient Israelis, all the Lord has said we will do, all the Lord has said we will do, all the Lord has said we will do. But the God who is speaking to us is not the God who gives us a message of that results only in condemnation. He gives us a message of welcome, mercy, and we can actually be useful to him. And as we've gone through the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, we looked at the Beatitudes, and here is this welcome, and we come up, and blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is comfort. Theirs is inheritance. There is their hunger satisfied. There is they obtain mercy. They find pureness of heart. They find peace. They, in fact, will be called the sons of God. And now we find Jesus, okay, what's this going to look like? We've gotten the general description. What's it going to look like? Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt loses its savor, its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, you and I, in our culture, because we're uh, late 20th century, early 20, what century is this anyway? This is the 21st century we're in right now. To us, salt principally is that stuff in the shaker that we put on just to flavor. That was not the principal use of salt in the ancient world. Yeah, they did use it for that, for seasoning, but its principal use was to preserve things. They didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have freezers. How are they going to keep their meat from going bad and rotting in a hurry? They rubbed it with salt. And the salt did two things. It drew moisture out of the meat, but it also prevented the process of decay because it killed the bacteria. One of the old statements, some of us are old enough to remember this. Oh, that when somebody says something, typically somebody says something not kind to someone else who's perhaps already been afflicted, they can say, well, you just rubbed salt in my wounds. Yes, that was actually done. If a criminal was flogged for his crimes when they had finished the flogging, which was the prescribed punishment, they would rub salt in that person's wounds. Now, it hurt. Man, you rub salt in that wounds and it just amplifies and, and lengthens the pain. But they didn't do it, theoretically, for that reason, they were actually doing it as an act of kindness to keep your wound from getting infected because the salt killed the bacteria. And so rubbing salt on an open wound would prevent infection. And salt rubbed into meat, would it would dry it out, but it would also prevent it from rotting as quickly as it would otherwise. And that was the thing that they were most familiar with, that use of salt to preserve. You are the salt of the earth. What is the natural tendency of the earth? In fact, there's a, there's a scientific law. Second law of thermodynamics. It's also called the law of entropy. Any system, by the way, this is why evolution, this is a scientific law. This is an aside, totally aside. It's not what the sermon is about. This is an aside. This is why we know evolution is unscientific because there is a scientific law, second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, that says any system left to itself in isolation will collapse. It tends towards dysfunction, disunity. Evolution demand, now that's a scientific law because no scientist have, has ever observed an exception to that, not once. It's a scientific law because it happens that way every single time. Evolution demands that the opposite happened an infinite number of times. Can we say not scientific? Now, why did I bring that up? Okay. Anything left to itself 
tends toward disunity, collapse, disintegration. We live in a world, I, oh, oh. will it disappoint you too much if I confess something? Jim Rittman's a sinner. That guy right there, he's a sinner. I'm a sinner! Left to myself, without the help of God, I tend towards disintegration and decay. And it just gets worse, and it becomes smelly and obvious and... Unless there's an application of spiritual salt, we all tend towards disintegration and decay and the stench and foulness that sin creates. But Jesus says to those who come up the mountain to him, you are the salt of the earth. You are not the people who are to become corrupted and be corrupt. No, I will make use of you such that you are not only have the corruption leached out of your life, you will be useful to me and the lives of other people that the corruption might be leached out of their persons in life. You are the salt. of the, the number one use of salt in that culture was preservation. The stopping of the disintegration. In preparation for this sermon, I was reading a commentary and uh, one of these, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I love this guy. What a preacher. This guy was a heart doctor. That mean that was what his actual professional training. He was a heart surgeon in Great Britain, starting in like the in the nineteen teens, a <laughs> hundred years ago. This guy was a heart surgeon, and then he the Lord called him into preaching into pastoral work, and he became the associate pastor of the Westminster Chapel in London under a very famous man named G. Campbell Morgan. And in about 1943 or 4, when G. Campbell Morgan died, he became the pastor and the preacher. And he, I mean, he went to be with the Lord 50 years later. And in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he points out that when he was starting his professional career, do you know what the opinion of the elites of this world was? Oh, man, the world is getting better. We got this thing. This is before World War I. This 20th century is going to be just the greatest century of all. We are getting this peace thing together. We're getting all We're going to, and later, oh, we're going to have this League of Nations. And after, that's after the disaster of World War I. But he said at the beginning of the 20th century, the outlook of the world leadership was things were really doing good and going to get better. And there were leaders in British and American Christianity in the mainline denominations that said, man, we better get aboard that or we'll be left behind. And so they jumped on board. Yeah, things are getting better and better and better. There's a hymn 
We've a story to tell to the nations that will turn their heart to the right. And when they've heard this story, think the, the kingdom of light and life will come. We will bring in the kingdom. I'm not making this up. That kingdom that God promised, it's going to come in because we're going to go out there and do our wonderful work. And what happened in the 20th century? It was probably as bloody a century as you will find in all of human history with one disastrous collapse after another, after another, after another. The League of Nations failed. Can we say the United Nations has not actually lived up to its promise? And all any of these other... Why? Because the people doing that work weren't the salt of the earth. What makes the salt of the earth salty? What makes us useful in God's name? When we tell people the truth. Amen. You know what the truth is? We're not getting better and better. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. None is righteous. No, not one. But God has solved. God has. God has. God has. God has solved the unsolvable problem. And so we can go to people whose lives are rotting. I think it was Wednesday, I walked into Walmart and I'm walking through the front aisle, right in the front of the, ch of the building, right across the, where all the registers, all you know, people leaving the store. And there is an individual sitting on a bench talking with two men over here about 15, 20 feet away. I can honestly tell you right now, I still don't know if that was a man or a woman. I don't know. And I looked and I watched the behavior, very animated. I honestly can't tell you if that was a man pretending to be a woman or a woman pretending to be a man. I still don't know. And I look. Folks, that's called rot. That is a stench to God. But it is a solvable stench because the mighty work, the blood of Jesus is adequate, is enough to cleanse both before God in, the, in his justice and to completely reshape that person from the inside out so that they might walk in the image of Jesus Christ. Now, you all... Now, we all had that experience the first time we saw something like this. We said, what in the world? What's that supposed to be? And then all of a sudden, bang, we saw what it was. What is it? Well, it's not this. It's this. It's Jesus. If we're the salt of the earth, what is this? It's just a chunk of wood. But when you look at it, all of a sudden, we all had that experience, even if it was, in my case, it took a while. 
Some of you, ladies especially, saw within about two seconds, oh, that's Jesus. What are we? We're just chunks of wood. But if we're like, if we're walking with him, if we're truly salt in his hand, being rubbed on the rot that is the world, characteristic of the world, what happens? People will, as we're doing that, people will suddenly, oh, that's not Jeffrey. That's not Julie. That's Jesus. And they will give glory to God because they will see outcomes that cannot be accounted for in the person of Jeffrey or Julie or Mark. Or any, it will be Jesus' outcomes. And that's when the salt is really doing its work is when those people who are receiving the message suddenly see the message by God's help and it brings forgiveness and restoration. So what are we? We are to be used by God. We are the salt of the earth that is to deal with the God is God's instrument for dealing with the rot in this world to slow down the process and save some and save some. There was a guy He was the prophet, a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, which is called in the scripture the land of darkness. Because being part of northern Israel, it is where when they were invaded from the east, the invaders, whether they're Babylonians or Assyrians or Persians, whoever they were, they would come up the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and then turn south along the Mediterranean coast. So they needed to have food and water accessible for their armies. So you don't just cross the desert. You go up where the water supply and the food supply is. So they go up the Tigris-Euphrates and then come, to, and what would be the first part of Israel that they would reach? Zebulun and Naphtali, that's where those tribes were. And this man, in fact, grew up in a town right near Nazareth, where Jesus would be growing up. But he's several hundred years ahead of time. And he had lost, I would dare say, relatives to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the most cruel of all the ancient empires. They succeeded in their conquest because of the level of their cruelty. And they were the experts on siege warfare. So when the Assyrians showed up, you just surrendered. I don't care how big your walls are. They're coming over those walls. And so you just surrender. Because if you don't, they're out there around the city. They're digging holes like fence, and they're putting stakes in the ground. Because if you don't surrender, the prominent people of your city, when they do come over the walls, are going to drag them out and they're going to impale them on those posts. These are cruel, horrible people. And this man had lost relatives almost certainly to them. And then God said to this man, Jonah, 
I want you to go over to Nineveh, modern-day Mosul. I want you to go over to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and I want you to preach repentance to them. And Jonah's like, Lord, we don't want them to repent. What are you talking about? I want to see you stomp the living daylights out of them just like they did to us. And so I'm not going east. I'm going west. And he went out on the, of course, God had an agenda he hadn't told Jonah about. On the way to Nineveh, I'm going to put you on a ship that's out in the Mediterranean. So there's a, there's a bunch of Phoenician, uh, Phoenician crewmen there that I want to see saved too. And so he got them saved, got, and he got channeled through a fish who spit him out on the shore and then uh, bleached white from being in the belly of that fish for three days. He goes to... Nineveh, where they worship Dagon, whose emblem is the fish god. <laughs> he goes there, and what's his message? His message actually isn't about forgiveness. His message is, he doesn't even say repent. He just says, God's going to destroy this place in 40 days. And he goes across, and it's a three days journey across that large city. He walked across that city and told them God is going to destroy this place in 40 days. That's his message. He doesn't say repent. He doesn't say believe in Jesus, turn to the guy. He just says God's going to destroy. And it was an desperate cry, desperate thing. They repent. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They believed that God was going to destroy them. They believed his message. And they did what he hadn't even urged them to do. They repented. They got real. There's a series of books that came out decades ago, published by Oxford University, on the ancient civilizations. Each volume is a different civilization. And there is the Assyrian volume. And the, the historians writing about the history of the Assyrians will tell you the Assyrians had conquered the Middle East. But their culture was in swift decline. They were morally, in every way imaginable, they were just collapsing. And there was just, but we don't know what happened. Somewhere around 705 B.C., all of a sudden, bang, they got stable. The decline just stopped. And for the next 40, 45, 50 years, they were just on an even keel, and then they fell off the cliff again, and that was the end, and the Babylonians came in and destroyed them. Well, we have no idea what happened that caused them to stabilize and level out and get their act together. Jonah. That was when Jonah showed up about 705 B.C. And they repented. So despite himself, Jonah was the salt of the earth and caused the preservation of that culture. What's happening to the culture here in the United States of America? Now, some of us old, old people, okay, Ladies, I'm not talking about you at all. 
some of us old men are looking at our modern culture and we can't believe what's in front of our eyes would have been absolutely unimaginable even 30 years ago let alone 40 50 60 no and yet here we are in a culture that can't even admit to the things right in front of their eyes and if you try to point it out to them simple 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 truths all they do is yell and scream, plug their ears, and run away. Can we say immature? We, can we say rotten culture? We can. We are to be useful to our God. What did Darren ask us to pray for? Today, Living Word Bible School students are going to be going out door to door doing what? Salt work. Sowing the salt, sowing the gospel, and the outcome, secondary, primary outcome we're looking for is the individual salvation of people, redemption of people. But what's the, uh, what is the social outcome? The culture gets rescued. Richard Wormbrandt. was a Jewish businessman who in the mid-1930s was exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and he became a Christian. And not only did he become a Christian, he became a Lutheran minister. And he became a Lutheran minister who was devoted to God and God's word. And then following World War II, the communists took over Romania. And one of their initial strategies to get everybody on board with them was to gather the prominent religious leaders in Romania. We're going to have a nationwide radio broadcast, and we're going to line you men up and you are going to one at a time come to the microphone and tell everybody to do what we tell them to do. Right? And he was at that meeting, and his wife was with him at that meeting. They gathered, and one after another after another, these religious leaders went to the microphone and said what the communists wanted them to say. And just before it was his turn, Richard Wormbrandt's wife, thank you, God, turned to him and she said, you're not going to betray Jesus too, are you? And he said, no, I'm not. And he went to the microphone, and they were so stunned, they didn't get the microphone turned off fast enough. He stood before that microphone and broadcast to the entire population of Romania, here is the true Lord, Jesus Christ. These communists are, in fact, directing you against the truth. It wasn't very long after that that he was arrested and put in a dungeon. He was there for about 14 years. During most of that time, most of the Christians in Romania thought he was dead. There were guards in the Romanian prisons that here is this dungeon, I mean literally underground cells 
with all these Christian prisoners in one cell after another. And these men would be able to get together and the presence of Jesus was so strong and wonderful that the Romanian guards would unlock the doors, open them, take their, put down their weapons, rip off their own insignias, step in, close the door, reach through, lock themselves in the cells and throw the keys out in the hall. They would sentence themselves to prison because the presence of Jesus was so amazing, so wondrous. They were willing to pay any price to get what those salty men had. You are the salt of the earth. It enhances, it preserves, but it also enhances the flavor of whatever it's put on. And salt also creates thirst. Those Romanian guards stepped into the cells because they wanted so desperately to have their thirst slaked with what they saw these men were enjoying. And when 14 years later, when <laughs> because God is God, not Ceausescu, who was the <laughs> dictator of Romania, in, in, it, they insanely let Richard Wormbrand out and they let him emigrate to the United States. And he testified before Congress of what was really happening in Romania. And the Romanians are, how did this happen? How did we let this guy out? Because God told you to, that's why. And I heard Richard Wormbrand speak once about 1970. We had a young man graduate Friday night from the Job Corps, Eric. Eric has really blonde hair and he's 63 or four. Well, so was Richard Wormbrand, except when I saw him, he had white hair, not blonde hair, but he was like six or four. And he's, he spoke at the college I was going to, and he's wearing his Lutheran garb. And he told about some salty work that he had done here in the United States, not in Romania, but here in the United States. And he's talked about going to Boston Common. Now, if you've ever been to Boston, Boston Common is a big open area in the old part of Boston. And there was a big anti-war, Vietnam War riot. I mean, big get-together there. And they're attacking this blessed country. And Richard Wormbrandt went to this anti-war meeting. And I mean, Boston Common is packed with people. And there's a little guy, he said there was a little guy up there on the platform. There's a permanent platform. The little guy up there on the platform yelling into this microphone. Richard Wormbrandt, big, tall, white hair, Lutheran, <laughs> walks through the crowd walks up the steps onto that platform. He said, I grabbed the microphone out of that little guy's hand and I took my other elbow and I shoved him off the platform. And I started preaching the gospel to those people and nobody moved. The same God that sprung him out of that Romanian prison held those people in place to hear the gospel.
is that he was a, he was used by God as the salt. God was doing the rubbing of the salt. And he was creating thirst in those people, in those people. Well, Jesus adds these words in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. If you're just walking with me, you will shine. <clears throat> you won't have to make it happen. It will happen. Authentic Christians simply shine. A city that is set on a hill had, cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. Let me ask you a question, folks. Are you shining or are you hiding? Are you taking the opportunities God gives you to speak for him? Or are you restraining your speech? Well, it's not you restraining your speech. It's, your enemy, it's their enemy and yours. God has called us to speak. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine, shine in such a way before men that they may see your good works and not glorify you, but glorify your Father who is in heaven because they will look at you and me and they will see the things that we do in the power of God and it will be so clear that it really wasn't us. You know, I knew that old DJ. I knew the... The, what the DJ I'm seeing today, the DJ I just saw do that, isn't the DJ from 20 years. No, 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 no. That was a God act done through that guy. That wasn't a DJ act. And so as we walk with Christ, even when we don't think anybody's watching, people are watching and they're giving glory to Christ because they know we're not capable of those behaviors, those words, any more than they are. You know, there are a lot of things that Jesus says. If it wasn't Jesus, it would just hurt our ears. The Feast of Tabernacles every year, and I'll close with this, the Feast of Tabernacles every year, it was a seven-day feast. And for the first six of the seven days, the Levitical choir with a priest would go down from the temple. They would go down to the Pool of Siloam, and they would draw water within a golden pitcher out of the Pool of Siloam, and they would go back to the temple and the temple would be packed every day would be packed <clears throat> and they just as they're about and they would actually pour the water out just at the base of the altar the altar of burnt incense and there was one moment when every single day when the entire crowd didn't matter how many people were there it would all get quiet because they all wanted to hear the water pour onto the they wanted to hear that sound of the water then on the seventh day of the feast, they didn't just do it once, they did it seven times. Back and forth, 
the seven days, uh, for rather seven times on that last day. Upon the conclusion of the seventh time, on the seventh day, when everybody gets quiet, well, this is what it says in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last day, that great day of the feast, the crescendo day, when they march up and down seven times, Jesus stood and cried out when everybody got, we want to hear the water. Jesus takes that moment of silence in the temple, in that packed, packed, packed temple. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will go flow rivers of living water. <clears throat> Just as he had said in John 4 to the woman at the well, I will put a well in you, an artesian well, that will spring up into eternal life. Coming out of our mouths, that would hurt everybody's ears, but coming out of Jesus' mouth, it's nothing but the truth, and he follows through. He keeps that promise. He slakes our thirst. He's he slakes our thirst. What's our job? Be useful. Be the salt in his hand. Be the candlestick upon which the light can set. At the top of that candlestick, we're not the light. He is the, we are the light only because we point to him. We are the salt only because we salt point to him. But let's prayerfully consider what the Holy Spirit just said to us. This week, let's prayerfully consider that and how it might cause us to change the choices we're making each day. How do we spend our time? Are we making true, full use of the opportunities God gives us? And I'm preaching as much to myself. Believe me, folks, this passage beat me up a lot sooner than you heard it, okay? Lord Jesus Christ, we want to be salt. We want to be light. Richard Wormbrandt wasn't supposed to be an exception. May we follow, as Paul said, follow me even as I follow Christ. May we follow you and therefore be useful to you and that people may see Jesus in us. We ask this of you, good King Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.